You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. David Drake is the author of more than 60 novels, including the Hammers Slammers series, the Star Hunters series, the Crown of Isles series, and many other novels and collections. His upcoming novel in the Lord of the Isles series is The God's Return. Thank you for speaking with me, David. Hi, Rick. Um, glad to be here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well. <laughs> um, one of the things that, that interests me about your work is your take on the fantasy genre. You, I think that, in a sense, your very first story you sold was to August Derleth. It was a horror uh, story. That's correct. Yeah, uh, first four stories I sold were to Mr. Derleth, and they were horror stories. And I think, in a sense, all your work since then could really be called horror. Until 1997 or so, when I wrote Redliners and was able to write more things. Yes, it, it really was, whatever genre it was on the surface, it was horror underneath. I, I was trying to deal with Nam. I mean, it's really that simple. Well, tell us a little bit about your history. You were uh, brought up in Iowa, and, and you know, you had, uh, you had a, a very normal upbringing. And, oh, and absolutely. Here yeah. you were in 1970. You're on your way to being a lawyer. Uh, yeah, well, actually, 1968, I was on my way to being a lawyer, and I was, you know, literally in the middle of... Uh, Duke University Law School. Uh, I had a year and a half, and I had a year and a half to go. And uh, they eliminated the graduate student deferment in 1968, so I was drafted. Uh, in 1969, they brought in the draft lottery, but in 68, actually a third of my basic training company were college graduates, like me. Uh, this is not something most people seem to be aware of. So. In, in 1968, I was in basic training with a third of the, the company was uh, black kids from central Detroit, uh, many of whom had been shoeshine boys, and a third of the company was uh, basically white kids from western North Carolina, uh, similar educational backgrounds, but white. And a third of us were college graduates. And let me tell you, that was... Um, that was a cultural experience for all three groups, I think. Now, had you been interested in writing before this? Uh, yes. Um, I had actually sold uh, two stories to Mr. Derleth, uh, one while I was an undergraduate and one just after I started law school. So I I'd sold two horror stories, and I basically it was a hobby. I mean, some people play golf, some people play tennis. I wrote, you know, fiction. Uh, it, it was it was fun, but I was on my way to being a lawyer. You were on your way to being a lawyer, and then you were taken off that track. Tell us uh, about what happened when you were plucked out of uh, the the bosom of the mid-America white lawyerdom into the cauldron of Vietnam. Um, it screwed me up pretty royally. Uh, I believe me, I, I didn't volunteer for anything uh, when. They got me into basic. I was like like anyone in my situation. I was sent to a, a separate office where a first lieutenant 
gave me a list of things which, with my educational background, I would be allied, allowed to sign up for uh, with the, they, they actually stated it bluntly, but everyone knew it. Uh, if you had any college and you were drafted, if you did not pick a school and get out of it, uh, that is, you know, pick a specialty, uh, you went as 11 Bravo. You, you went as infantry. They made it quite clear. If you are a college graduate and you do not give us something extra, we will make you an infantryman, uh, which is basically what happened to Joe Haldeman, by the way. Um, in my case, they kept listing things, and really quite a long list, but all of them required uh, a commitment. See, the, the draft commitment was for two years. Uh, all of the things they offered were for three years or for four years. Uh, and it would have you know, prevented me from going as infantry. But I told him, uh, you've got me for two years. You can do anything you please in those two years. I am a citizen. Uh, but I will not give you one day. And uh, they finally got down to the end of the list. And one of the options had been a 47-week Vietnamese language course, uh, which would have required a two-year commitment uh, in addition to the two years. Uh, however, because of the influx of college graduates, they had created a new course that was the same 47-week course in 30 weeks. And you could do that on the minimum draft commitment. And, you know, if you passed a, um, the Army language specialty test, and if they happened to pick you. And I, I didn't see it. I mean, it was obvious if I took a Vietnamese language course, it was obvious where I was going. But it was obvious where I was going anyway, so uh, I, I took the, uh, the language course and became, and was accepted for it. It was funny, um, the, it was a, the test was a 60-point test, and what they did was sit you down with uh, questions and answers in a, a non-language. I, I think it was a Russian-based international language. But, the uh, Russian version of Esperanto? Yes, yes. Wow. Uh, uh, I mean, I don't know what it was, but you know, it was pretty obvious from the context what it was. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, I wound up with a uh, passing grade was 35. Uh, I got a 55, and I, to this day, I don't know what I missed because it didn't seem that difficult to me. I'm, you know, I, I had a lot of languages as an undergraduate. But um, there were four of us in the battalion of 600 people. There were four of us who took it and passed it. And there were two of us in my squad, as a matter of fact, who got 55s. The, the other fellow in the squad was, uh, he was a, going for his physics PhD at the University of Chicago. Uh, I mean, we were, we were a pretty smart group. This seems like a, this seems like a, a, a really high, high intellect uh, bunch of guys to be yes, grunts in the uh, army. This, this was this was Robert S. McNamara's last gift to America was to to take top grad students and send them to Nam. Uh, <laughs> Not the gift that has kept on giving. Oh uh, well, I don't know. It <laughs> kept on giving to me. <laughs> but um, there there was another guy in. Um, different company whose name began with W. Uh, he got a 47. 
and there was a fourth guy who got a 35. Uh, and we were D, G, the other guy in my squad, J, the fellow with a 35. They had two slots, and they took the 55, the 55, and the 35. And 47 went as 11 Bravo. Mm. Uh, you know, and it, it, if my name had been Wozniak, um, you know, I would have been 11 Bravo. Uh, but instead, I went to interrogation school, language school and interrogation school, and became a, an enlisted interrogator with the 11th Armored Cavalry Regiment. Now, you described your feelings over there as being, um, you, you were living in a kind of a state of, of fear and, and terror. I was completely shut down. I mean, basically, it, it went beyond fear. Uh, at some level, I gave myself up for dead. And it, I wasn't afraid anymore. I was just completely shut. Look, you're in a situation where you're in a, a group of three tracks going down to the water point, and you decide to ride on the second track. And so the vehicles are going down to the water point, and one of the vehicles runs over a mine. And it's the second vehicle, but it could have been the third, and it could have been the first. So you have made a decision, and you know the vehicle flips over on its back. We're talking ACABs, and a 20-pound mine. It flips over on its back, and the cupola goes flying off, and the driver is actually not, he's battered, but he's basically okay. Uh, if you'd been in the cupola, you're dead. If, in fact, you're, um, as, as the TC was on that one, if he's sleeping as, uh, you know, in, inside the uh, fighting compartment, then he's okay. He winds up with all of the ammunition containers that were on the floor lying on top of him, but he's not dead because he wasn't in the cupola. And if you're in the third track, you're okay too. But you have made the decision that is a life-threatening, life-ending decision when you decided to get on the third track instead of the second track. And so, look, nothing bad happened to me. The only physical scar I wound up with was uh, staphylococcus. But, you know, I got boils. Uh, but I gave myself up for dead. And no, that, that isn't actually fear. That's just complete sh shutdown. And um, this, is, this is not a good way to live. Actually, it isn't a matter of living. And I was very fortunate when I got back to the world to be able to write. Now, uh, <laughs> you've also said too, and I think this is really an interesting kind of dualistic perception, that while you were there, did you realize that you were, in, you were, you yourselves and, and the American presence there was far more dangerous to everybody there than they were to you? Oh, hell yes! I mean, listen, I was with a, an armored unit. I mean, this, they had AK-47s. We had 90-millimeter main guns, Cal-50s, 
the M16 for my unit, that was, that was a backup weapon. Uh, we were the Black Horse. Uh, you know, we, we, look, there, there are units and units, and, and there were elite units in Vietnam, and some of them everybody knows about. Uh, you know, first air cav, certainly. Uh, the Marines, certainly. Uh, but we were the Black Horse. We were the one separate armored cavalry regiment in Vietnam. We sometimes operated under the operational control of the first air cav, but we were an elite, and we were a small elite unit, and we're the best people. We were the best. And I didn't ask to come, God knows, but I was very lucky to have been dropped into the Black Horse rather than something like the Americal Division or Fourth Infantry, which were dumping grounds. Uh, if, if you wonder why My Lai happened, look at the people who wound up in the Americal Division. It's, it's really that simple. You had low-end soldiers, and the officers were not significantly better, or they wouldn't have been there, whereas the, the Black Horse was a unit that everybody, all the officers, strove to get into. You're in Vietnam. You're a highly educated young man. You're halfway to being a lawyer. You're a published writer. And, and as an amateur writer, that's a really satisfying feeling. Yeah. I mean, it's great. <laughs> it was. <laughs> <laughs> and you have a, enough of a knowledge of the horror genre to write for August Derleth, which is some pretty specialized knowledge. Um, talk about taking those kind of perceptions of, you know, Lovecraftian cosmic horror into a situation, it sounds like, in a sense, you had an almost Lovecraftian response. You know, I think that's actually correct, though I would compare myself more to Clark Ashton Smith. Exactly, uh, yes, who saw no humanity. Exactly, exactly, yes. I mean, Lovecraft uh, gets the... He is, is stated to have been creating cosmic horror and all that, but, but really the utter bleakness in that field uh, was Clark Ashton Smith, who would write things which simply did not accept the possibility of any merit in humanity. A and he wasn't kidding. I mean, you, you get the feeling with Lovecraft, I get the feeling with Lovecraft, that it was posturing. Uh, I think with Smith that a that some of his stories, you know, the, the Black Idol and um, the Garden of Adamtha, uh, Isle of the Torturers, uh, the, this is really how he viewed the world, and that was basically the world I was in in Vietnam. Uh, <laughs> it, it, this was not my idea, <laughs> but, you know, you, you deal with, with what you got. Now, you, you came out of Vietnam, as you said, physically unscathed. Absolutely. I was very thin. Mm -hmm. I, I probably weighed about 120 pounds. There, there's a piece, there's a picture of me on, may I say, shit-burning detail on, because that's what it was, but mm -hmm. you know, there, there's a, a picture of me disposing of solid waste with diesel fuel and uh, an engineer stake in the field. And a friend of mine looked at it and said, 
were you really that thin? And yeah, I really was. We didn't eat much mm. here either in the field. <laughs> but no, I was physically fine. <laughs> you came back to um, the United States. It's 1970, I 19, guess? Uh, January 15th, 1971, okay. yes. Mm -hmm. so, so you're back in the United States. You're still a highly educated young man. You're still three-quarters of the way through law school or halfway through life. What halfway. did you decide to do? <laughs> I went back to law school, of course. <laughs> uh, I, yeah, 72 hours after I was uh, sitting in Benoit waiting for my flight back to the world, uh, I was in the lounge of Duke University Law School waiting to start my fourth semester of law school. That, that was the My Caring Countries transition program for it's Vietnam veterans. Uh, the, um, boy, <laughs> you know, for a lot of people, an elite law school is, is really a very stressful mm -hmm. occasion. I, I don't remember anything about that last year and a half. I don't remember a thing. Uh, my grades were okay. I mean, I, I wound up in the top third of my class. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I don't remember a darn thing. Um, I'd been on Law Journal. Uh, I dropped off that when I came back. Um, they're just, uh, life's too short for bull. I, I mean, it, it, was, it was really that simple. And I thought, you know, this may have bad career effects on me, and I don't care. I've, I've, I'm not going to do this. The Lovecraftian approach to law school. Well, apparently. <laughs> uh, it, it didn't do anything very positive for my legal career, but uh, no, you, you ask what I did, and I tell you, what I did was exactly what was in front of me. Mm -hmm. I just kept putting one foot in front of the other because I, I couldn't think beyond that. I just had to keep going, hoping that I was going to get to the end someday. And... Um, Finished law school, spent eight years as assistant town attorney for the town of Chapel Hill. Quit lawyering completely then. Now, tell me, part of law school, there's a lot of writing in law school. Were you writing fiction at this time, too, yes. still, and uh, reading? Yes, yes, I was, although, uh, yeah, that, that's kind of interesting. Um, tell me what you were reading in Vietnam. What are you reading in Vietnam? Oh, yeah. What, yeah. what were you reading? Oh, my goodness, I was reading, um, uh, started rereading um, the Aeneid. Um, I, I'm fluent in Latin. And when I say I started rereading the Aeneid, I mean I had the Oxford classical text of the Aeneid, and I was reading that. I was reading, uh, I got fascinated with the, um, the fourth century uh, situation, uh, third century crisis, actually. Uh, of the Roman Empire, and I was reading uh, Latin panegyrics uh, to get, uh, you know, views of Constantius Chlorus. And this is while you were making the choice to get, get into the third yeah. <laughs> unit. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, <laughs> and so I guess some of this... I was crazy as a bed bug, <laughs> but, but un understand, I, yeah, I, I, was, I was a Latin major as an undergraduate, a history and Latin major, and... Uh, I, I just dove into Latin as I would, at the time I said to keep myself sane, but of course I wasn't <laughs> keeping myself sane, <laughs> but I was keeping myself between the ditches. Uh, years uh, later I got a, an email from uh, a guy who'd been in the 
the same unit, uh, first squadron, uh, second squadron, when I was with second squadron and uh, in Cambodia. He said, all I really remember about you is you're always reading Latin. I said, yeah, well, that was me. <laughs> <laughs> So, so I, I taught myself French. I taught myself to read French. Um, one of my buddies there was uh, got a correspondence course in French through you know through the army, and he didn't use it. And I said, "Can I use your books?" So I taught myself to read French. I was walking around with um, uh, Théâtre uh, de Molière. I didn't really learn to pronounce it. But I, I had this French paperback with 10 plays of uh, Moliere in it. And there's a really funny story about that. If, if, Go, okay. tell me. <laughs> okay, well, and, and I, I will I'll try to clean up the language a bit. But um, so Don't, we, we'll, we'll censor it. Okay, I'm okay. The podcast. <laughs> um, the, um, uh, we're, we're, wearing, we're wearing jungle fatigues, which and they have large cargo pockets. Mm -hmm. And so you could Something stick that survived with you. Yes, it did. Yes, it, I, I, I have, <laughs> listen, uh, that's, uh, and, and listen, they're, they're cotton, they're ripstop, they, they last, they're more comfortable than jeans. Yes, I'm big believer in jungle fatigues, but I don't wear them in any pattern that, you know, khaki or black or some solid color. Mm -hmm. um, so you're in the jungle with Moliere in your pocket. Yes, I was. Uh, it, but so I'm walking around, and I've, I've got this copy of uh, the Theater of Moliere in my pocket, and it's a typographic cover. And it was just a book that happened to be in the unit. I have no idea why, but I picked it up, and I'm, I'm reading Moliere. I read several plays by Moliere. And uh, so all that really shows is the upper edge of it sticking out the top of my cargo pocket. And it's yellow, because French paperbacks were yellow. Well, at the time, the nightstand paperbacks, which were the, the standard fuckbook of the late 60s, mm -hmm. had yellow typographic covers. So I'm walking <laughs> around with Moliere in my pocket, and guys say, oh, what you got there? And they'd pull it out, and they'd look at it, and they'd give me a funny ex look. And I'd, why is everybody interested that I'm reading French? I mean, you know, <laughs> it took me days to realize they thought it was Juicy Lucy or something of the sort. <laughs> oh, <laughs> no, it's Moliere. <laughs> oh, well. <laughs> so, so you've come back from two years in Vietnam reading Moliere, the Aeneid, and Roman yep. history. Yeah. And... Uh, and finishing law school, yeah. Finishing, so you finished law school. I did. W were, you, were you writing fiction then? Uh, I actually sold one story that I, uh, that I wrote while I was in Vietnam. Uh, it was after I was returned to, from the field to Xeon, and I was charged quarters, you know, CQ one Sunday morning, and I was typing up uh, this little story. It's not much of a story, but, uh, you know, I was typing it up, and I heard a bang, and I turned around and looked behind me, and there was a, another bang, much louder, as the, the ammo dump blowing up. And then there, you know, this, this big, it's weird. If you've never seen a really large explosion, and, and we're not talking Hollywood here, we're talking mm -hmm. high explosive. This mm -hmm. is not, you know, gasoline or something. And then there's this huge blam, and there's this huge orange bubble, this big orange bubble. And... Uh, well, that was kind of the end, except for the 155 rounds that kept dropping down. They, they weren't fused, but, you know, it, 
if you're in the wrong place, a 95-pound um, artillery shell will, will make a dent. No one was killed. Uh, you know, the two people who set it off by accident, uh, F troop was coming in from the field. And there's you, literally an F troop? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> I thought that was just stupid. No, no, TV no, no, no. No, that, that's, that's absolutely true. Yeah. It was uh, uh, Second Squadron was um, E Troop, F Troop, mm -hmm. G Troop, and H Company, mm -hmm. because uh, H Company was a tank company. Mm -hmm. uh, but the, the equivalent of a company in cavalry is troop. Mm -hmm. And yeah, you're darn right there was an F Troop. Uh, they were they were coming in from the field, and you um, you have to turn in all your arms and ammunition when you come in from the field. To, mm -hmm. You know, the Zion big base camp. So guys had a truck and were tossing ordnance out the back. And one of the things they were tossing out was a mortar crate, which you know think of it as an orange crate. You have slats uh, full of smoke grenades. And so they're just tossing stuff out because it's Sunday morning. They're trying to get done with a nasty job so they can, you know, go on liberty anyway. And um, so they toss out this orange crate that's full of smoke grenades, and one of the rings is hanging out the side of the crate, and it caught on the tailgate latch. So they hurl into this pile of ordnance. They hurl a box that starts smoking, whereupon they immediately jumped in the truck and drove out. And then the first explosion was the pile of stuff they had just thrown out of their truck. And the second explosion was everything that was close to that. And the third explosion was everything else that was in the ammo dump. Wow. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> I did, this is your background for Lovecraftian fiction. Uh, yeah, well, it, uh, I thought, Huh. <laughs> I wonder what that was. <laughs> it is uh, the darndest thing. The, the chapel was actually right next to the ammo dump and it, for a Sunday morning. Uh, but um, it was a little afternoon, so there, uh, there was nobody in the chapel. But because of the berm around the, the ammo dump, it was only the stuff above the berm. But the, the chapel was this huge A-frame, you know, mm -hmm. sheet metal uh, building. And everything above berm level was just ripped off. Uh, it, was, it was pretty impressive. Uh, and I say, this had absolutely nothing to do with enemy action. I mean, I, <laughs> the, I, I can understand why you would experience Lovecraftian terror in I, this. It's, you can you die. You have no, yeah. You can die. You can die, and, and people do die, and you have absolutely no control. And, you know, going to church that morning could have been the fatal decision. Really that simple. Seems It's interesting the way you, you phrase this, because you've said this a few times, that it's, it's a decision. And <laughs> you never know when what the decision you make will be the fatal decision. Yeah. It, it's really easy to trace back from the, you know, the ultimate result. But you cannot predict. You know, you are actually doing something. You are making a choice to do X rather than Y. And the result of that, you live or you die, can only be determined after the fact. But it is a clear dichotomy. He took 
he stepped off on his left foot instead of his right foot, and therefore he died, or he went to law school. You went to law school. I went to law school, yeah. And, uh, and wrote some, some fine Lovecraftian fiction in law school? Um, well, I, I, I wrote some, uh, some Lovecraftian fiction in law school, and um, I sold one more story to Mr. Derelict, and then he died. And I couldn't sell the sort of historical horror that I was writing. Uh, my friend Manley Wade Wellman and uh, Carl Wagner were both writers. They both in the, the Chapel Hill-Durham area where I was. And we would get together. They suggested I use my Vietnam background. I wrote a couple of stories using Vietnam as a background that is the way you would use the French Revolution as mm -hmm. a background mm -hmm. or use the American Southwest as a background. You know, here's a, a horror story that is set in Vietnam. Here is a science fiction story that is set in Vietnam with a, a UFO, you know, mm -hmm. that sort of thing. But they were standard horror and standard um, science fiction, you know, <coughs> first contact stories. Mm -hmm. They just used an unusual setting and they sold. Then, then I thought, oh, instead of just using Vietnam as a setting, I will transmute it. I will write about, I will write military SF. There's, you know, a long history of military SF. I will write military SF, but I will use the real kind of combat background I know as, you know, to infuse it. It won't be set in Vietnam, but it'll be a unit like the kind of unit I was assigned to in Vietnam. That was a Hammer Slammer series. Now, what made you decide to use the literature of the fantastic and horror tropes and science fiction tropes to talk about your, your experience in Vietnam instead Distance. of just talking about it? Distance. Distance. Did I say I was screwed up? I was deeply, 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 I'm still screwed up, but not nearly as badly as I was. Uh, I absolutely needed the distance. And, you know, there was a reason I was reading Latin. Took me completely out of the world I was in. Uh, I had always read science fiction and fantasy, and using them as the medium in which I told my stories gave me the distance that I, I I couldn't, still can, not easily. I mean, I, I, I write a bit straight about Vietnam. Now, I can talk to you straight about Vietnam without, without bad things happening. Uh, but not in 1972, not in 1974. I needed the distance. Well, talk about creating Hammer Slammers. This is a, I mean, it's a classic series, and, and it's a, a, a wonderful example uh, of using the fantastic to say things about reality that you can't say while being real. Yeah, um, but as I say, I was just, what I was doing, but I was not aware of it, what I was doing was using writing as therapy. I was not aware of this. I said, I'm a hobbyist. I'm a lawyer. I write for fun. You know. um, but I did use the kind of unit, an, an elite armored unit. And until you've been in something like that, unless you've had the good luck, and it was good luck, 
to be in an elite unit. You have no idea how that feels. Uh, it was us and them, but there was an us. It wasn't me against the world. It was us against the world. And we were the best, and we were, we were darn sure we were the best. And, you know, you, you can talk to any nom vet, and if they were, if, you know, if they, if they were in a unit like the 1st Air Cav, or if they were a Marine, uh, they'll say, no, no, we were the best. But nobody will say that the Black Horse doesn't deserve a look-in. You know, it, it, it's one of those. Uh, and, and there really was, it's not really camaraderie. It's that you knew the guy next to you was going to be doing his job. And you were going to be doing your job also, you know, not because you believed in the war. I, mean, I was a draftee. A lot of us were draftees. Uh, and in, in 1970, nobody believed in the war. Nobody believed in the utility of what was happening. Uh, we had seen enough of the Vietnamese government, such as it was, and the Vietnamese army, such as it was, that nobody thought that this is something that would survive or should survive. But we were there, and so we were doing our jobs. And if that meant going into Cambodia, we were the spearhead into Cambodia. You were. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> hey, yes, we were. <laughs> uh, I, I'm not. My God. Yeah. This is, this is fascinating. Well, now, it, one thing that strikes me, too, that I think speaks to your your fiction is this experience of taking you know what was then the absolutely highest technology available in the world mm -hmm. into the most primitive places in the world you were taking 20th century technology into places that were approximately the same level of technology that you were reading about when you were reading about 4th century Rome yeah, actually, that that's true. Although by by the time I was there, we were dealing with the NVA, mm -hmm. and but you know, basically, it was small arms. I mean, you know, sure, uh, twelve point seven millimeter uh, machine guns mm -hmm. uh, when we went into Snool. Uh but you know, these are these are modern in the sense of nineteen twenties anti-aircraft mm -hmm. machine guns, comparable to our Cal fifties. Uh, we were in M48 tanks, not M60 tanks, because the 90-millimeter main gun of the M48 was, um, it was basically the same running gear. Mm -hmm. uh, the 90-millimeter main gun, we had more ammunition stowage than an M60's 105 did, and we didn't need a heavy gun with the uh, canister and, um, to a degree, green ball, uh, shrapnel, dial a dink. <laughs> you, you said it to, you know, if, if, if your target was 800 yards away, you, you rotated a nose fuse and it set the, uh, the round off at 800 yards to, to spread the ball. So it was a true shrapnel round, but we called them dial-a-dink. <laughs> look, uh, no, no army in the field is, is politically correct, and believe me, we were not politically correct. And, you know, the... The joke, and it wasn't entirely a joke, uh, but any combat unit, uh, certainly ours, that the way to solve the Vietnam War is to take all the good Vietnamese and put them on an island. And then you start in the south and you move north and you nuke everything 
you just bomb everything up to the Chinese border, and then you bomb the island. <laughs> and, and that is really the, and, and that is why all the hearts and minds stuff, uh, people, you can't do it that way. If you send in combat troops and tell them to engage in combat, uh, that, that is the attitude you will have. That is the attitude we had. And we were, we were fine in a free fire zone. But we should never have been taken out of a free fire zone because we operated the same way. Uh, you shoot at us, we shot back. We shot back with everything we had. And if you were squatting in the middle of a village, we shot back anyway. I've been speaking with David Drake. He's the author of the Hammer Slammer series. Thank you for joining me, David. <laughs> this has been really quite interesting. <laughs> You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.